Peace Building Podcast. My name is Susan Coleman. I'm a global coach, mediator, and the host of this podcast. Join me as I interview today's most creative, courageous, and sometimes outrageous mediators, coaches, entrepreneurs, and out-of-the-box thinkers whose work, whether intended or not, is building peace. Tune in for pure inspiration as we explore the best stories, the best practices, the best ideas of a new world emerging. I woke up this morning uh, feeling a little low. It's our winter here in the Northeast and it's kind of bleak and I'm still getting over a pretty tenacious cold or flu. Um, that I think maybe hit a lot of us when Donald Trump got elected president in the United States, but not sure I can actually make that connection. But um, (laughs) then I started reading more about Rabia while I was still in bed, and I basically sprung out of bed. My feet hit the floor, and I got going. Um, Who she is, her voice, her wisdom and leadership is, is so exciting to me and so helpful both for our chaotic times with the election of Donald Trump but also for the niche of this podcast. As you know, this podcast explores actions and processes that build common ground. It's not focusing on political activism, uh, not not because it doesn't support it, but or or spiritual practice, again, not because, uh, you know, it doesn't support it, but but just because our niche is is um, to really focus on how do you use yourself to intervene uh, in a way that that does build collaboration and bringing people together and that does bridge the divide. Um, but what's interesting about Rabia is, you know, it, it's um, the lines get very blurry around activism and spiritual practice. And she it gets very blurry with her because she is she seems like she has a very deep spiritual practice. And I'm sure she would call herself an activist. Um, I've never actually met her in person. Uh, but I've loved talking with her on the phone. Uh, she says, one of our conversations, she said, um, to have done the work she has done is an exercise in happiness and optimism. And you can really tell by talking to her, she's pretty contagious. She was um, introduced to me through Peter Hawkins, a systems team coach. There's a lot of parallels between intervening in organizational systems to build collaboration and with peace building. So I, and I hope to have Peter on the show sometime soon so we can continue to explore those links uh, because one of my objectives here has always been to bring the best of organization development consulting to the larger field of international relations and building peace. So I, I want to read you, uh, you know, I usually read excerpts of bios, but Rabia's bio is really it's just extraordinary and I, um, it was hard to edit and I actually, it actually brought tears to my eyes. So I hope I hope it doesn't now. I hope I can, you know, read it to you um, without crying. But, um, but I want to read you parts of, of um, her bio, and uh, and then get her uh, get her voice in in here. Um, so Elizabeth Rabia Roberts, uh, EDD, is an internationally known citizen activist and women's advocate. She is Majika. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Rabia. She is there listening to this. Am I pronouncing that right? It's Mashaika. Mashaika. Okay. A spiritual guide and teacher in the international Sufi way and a lifelong student and teacher in non-dual Buddhism. 
She has spent nearly 50 years as a change agent for social and environmental justice issues. 17 countries in the past 25 years have been her home. She has slept in tents, bamboo huts, ashrams, church basements, hotels, the occasional palace, and the guest room <laughs> of friends around the world. In every country in which she has lived and worked, she has arranged women's retreats, empowerment projects, and leadership trainings in the new story. She has listened to thousands of women from different cultures share their political feelings, as well as their most intimate stories. Recently, while in Afghanistan, Rabia was called one of our global grandmothers, a title she cherishes above all others. I bet, that's pretty cool. Her earliest social activism came in 1965 when she spent two years in Selma, Alabama, that's in the United States, working with Martin Luther King Jr. She received her MA in Liberation Theology from Marquette University in 1968. As a single mother, she moved to Washington, D.C. after a year of living on welfare, a learning experience that would greatly inform her future work. She was hired as the youth coordinator for the White House Conference on Children and Youth and spent two years in this position before moving on to work as the assistant program director for the newly formed National Public Radio. She served for seven years as special consultant to John D. Rockefeller III on projects related to women's empowerment, population, and development issues. Um, so I'm going to go, now I'm going to edit. She, she has a doctorate from Harvard University. She has been influenced by the Catholic priest, Father Thomas Berry, and the Buddhist teacher, Joanna Macy. She's been connected to Naropa University. Um, I love this. In 1999, Rabia and her husband, Pierre Elias Amadon, am I pronouncing his name right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so sold their home and undertook a deliberate period of homelessness as part of an international pilgrimage of direct service and teaching. In 2002, while working with a peace group in Iraq, Robbie was elected the first American delegate to the Global Nonviolent Peace Force. Is that, um, is that the, um, oh my God, I just forgot his name, Mel. Um, yes, Mel yes. Gibson. Mel, um, Mel, not Gibson, yeah, Mel. <laughs> Ah, we're both yes. forgetting it. I started it with him. We were in, we were in the same place at the same time together. I was facilitating Duncan, a Duncan, Mel Duncan, and he is a wonderful <laughs> podcast interview uh, earlier on on the Peace Building Podcast. Um, since then, she has worked organizing and teaching active nonviolence in Burma, Indonesia, the tribal lands of Southeast Asia, Iraq, Syria, Israel, Palestine, and Brazil. Most recently, she has gathered with local women leaders and organizations in Afghanistan and Pakistan. She has a new project, which is called Waking Up Together, Feminine Wisdom and Global Transformation. Um, and I love this too, through, the, through her years of work in the world, she has acquired a deep respect for what she calls the activating power of the receptive. She has a deep faith in the innate capabilities and intuitions of women of all ages and cultures. Uh, and finally, she and Elias are currently working on a book about lessons learned from their decades of work together in the world titled Love and Dust on the Road from Selma to Kabul. Um, and she lives in Colorado. Is that is that where you're hailing from right now? Yes, it is. Okay. I'm living in Boulder, Colorado. And that's uh, so 
That's really, I mean, it's just an amazing, amazing bio. And I wonder if there's anything else that you want to add to it. Um, well, um, we spent a lot of the fall in um, Standing Rock doing uh, doing support work for the Native Americans there. And what I want to add to it is it sounds like an awful lot. And it has to do with I'm over 70. You know, <laughs> when you get to be my age, your bio gets long. Uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. So that's and I uh, I'm an active person. You know, I committed early to social justice and uh, adventure. And that's the uh, that's pretty much the direction I took first. Uh, 20 years or so of my life were, was more standard. I'm going to Harvard before that. Um, as I said, living in, uh, on welfare for a year. Um, but then getting jobs like you do eventually and, and uh, going to Harvard and building a couple of nonprofits. And uh, I got to the place where, um, Susan, I wanted to, to do exactly what your show is about. I wanted to be uh, in myself um, the source of of generating peace. You know, not just what I knew, not just uh, the foundation proposals I had written and the steps I'd promised them, but what would it be like if I simply showed up and uh, and began? You know, what, what just started talking to local activists. And that's kind of what um, occasioned the decision on my part and Elias's part to sell our house and to uh, go out into the world. I'd had 20 plus years of experience. I knew how to create nonprofits. I knew how to be with people. I was a good teacher. My husband was equally skilled, plus he had a lot of hands-on experience. And uh, it was kind of change of lifetime. What did and you it, say uh, to something like you proposed to him that you, you that you wanted to be? Uh, you just wanted to hit the road and be a. I can't remember what the words you told. It was one of our earlier conversations, and luckily you yeah. had a husband who. Would... It is actually what happened. I had been sick. I went on a retreat for three months in Arizona, um, which is in the United States. I came back from uh, my retreat told him I needed to have a serious talk, lit a candle, and uh, told him I needed to go on the road. I was getting old, and this was something I I wasn't that old. Now I look back and think I was still quite young. But I, uh, this would have been a dream all my life. And he said yes. And what was the dream, Rabia, exactly, in your The mind? dream was to uh, be a peace activist, work for social justice on the road, going where I was called, um, listening. What later became uh, my understanding of bearing witness, but I wanted to be the source. um, I'd had a a spiritual practice for most of my life, and uh, I felt that peace came from us and that it was more intimate than most of the work I'd been doing for the last 20 years. Um, yeah, I'd been, you know, making foundation proposals, promising them I'd evaluate it, giving them, um, tell them what would be done in two years. And it never, in my heart, 
uh, worked out that way, even though I wrote good evaluations. So I thought, okay, what is it that is really happening here in my life when I go to do uh, a piece of work out in other countries or in Washington, D.C.? And my husband agreed to uh, take five years on the road. We had to sell our house to be able to afford part of that. Um, I think I'd rent it now, <laughs> rent it out. <laughs> but at the time, yeah, well, I felt like we needed the cash. Live and, and learn. Instead, yeah. yeah, live and learn. Instead of going to foundations, we began to go to friends. And Boulder has some wealthy people, mm -hmm. to be honest. Mm -hmm. And we went to friends and say, how would you just like to support us and let us do what we find to do? Mm -hmm. And we had a good reputation by then. You know, we'd been writing, we'd been doing things, we were known, we'd been teaching. So people did that. They trusted us with the substantial amounts of money. Um, one of the great things we did, I still do, for the last 15, 20 years, is we give away other people's money. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, that, that started early on, and we've continued to raise money and give it out in small grants to um, people all around the world. Do you actually have a foundation, or you just do it informally? We have a nonprofit. Okay. But in terms of giving the money, we just do it. Okay. Nobody has to write us a proposal. We don't ever have to hear from them again. Yeah. It's a, it's a heart flow. Um, actually, Marion Rockefeller started the idea of flow funding, and uh -huh. that's what that's what we're part of. Um, no, we uh, I'm not even sure what we do is it has been quite legal, but um, we we've raised money, put it into our nonprofit. I don't see why not. Really, you know, you're just no, we couldn't yeah. either. But yeah. you can't you can't tell now. Yeah. Um, but no, I don't see why not either. Yeah. And it's it's been. One of the great things, we've given away almost a half million dollars wow. in small grants yeah. from Afghanistan to Burma wow. um, for everything for starting a Buffalo bank to, <laughs> you know, to mm -hmm. uh, uh, starting a woman's project. But that's a that's been a kind of side affair. I'd like to I'd like to share a story of um, that I think incorporates all of what I eventually learned. I mean, it's a seven-year story. I'll make it relatively short. But we came to call what we do bearing witness after my work with uh, Martin Luther King. It was a term he used. Mm -hmm. And what, what I found, what I began with was that to bear witness is to uh, show up in the world to show up quite personally and intimately because I believe that making peace or healing a system, whether it's your family or a war, it's, for me, it's, it's intimate work. Um, that, that, that's the whole idea, I think, of systems, understanding systems, is how do you become part of a system and uh, help generate the relationships, or for me, just became an occasion for relationships to heal themselves. We were invited to um, Burma and Thailand uh, over 20 some years ago to uh, help start a school training activists over there. And when we got there, um, 
several things were in, were in process. Uh, a number of global environmental organizations were trying to persuade the, uh, the government in Thailand to turn their wild places into national parks, which to us here might sound really good. But when we got over there, it was clear there was more than 400,000 native peoples living in those areas. Um, who were not very happy about that idea. Who weren't very happy, who weren't mm. consulted, who were beginning mm -hmm. to find out what was going on. And the interesting thing is that all the Thai activists were basically urban activists mm. working on air pollution, water pollution. That was, um, that was the focus in the country. So when, as we started this training program for activists, um, it became clear that they didn't know the tribal people. It's um, that these urban activists who are now our closest friends had actually not been in the forests or the jungles. Um, they were thought to have negative spirits in them and um, the citizens just go didn't go to the inside of their of their forests. So we decided that first year to um, lead a vision quest. Elias and I were trained guides. We'd been taking people out here in Utah. And sorry, and, who first, who invited you and how did they know about you? Oh, um, that's a good point. Um, we were invited by a uh, Right Livelihood Award winner named Sulak Sivaraksa. So he was the leading dissident uh, one of them in Southeast Asia. And he came to teach at a uh, school in in uh, Colorado that my husband and I had started training people in what we then called deep ecology, which was the psychological coming together with the environmental. This was the 80s mm -hmm. um, and early 90s. It was, a, it was a different time. The issue wasn't climate change. The issue was deforestation and rivers and pollution. And I felt very strongly that was having a, an emotional and psychological and spiritual impact on people. So we were running a summer school every year. And we gave um, Sulak Sivaraksa and some other Right Livelihood Award winners, we gave them scholarships to come to the school and talk about their regions of the globe. So he asked, would we come and set up something like that in uh, Bangkok, where he could have um, tribal people, activists, and some liberal monks come for training? So that, that uh, something like that helps a lot. It helps a lot to be invited in. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but we later, uh, we later ended up in a whole lot of Middle Eastern countries we weren't invited in because we learned, as my husband said it, the, the art of one phone call. <laughs> if you had one person to call in a country or in a conflict, you begin there, and there's this whole network, Susan, of people just like us, still are around the planet doing the kind of work, environmental or social. And if you connect into them and you're not asking for a salary, that was important. We thought of ourselves as pilgrims. We went over supporting ourselves. You, tell, you say you were recommended by someone they respect. 
um, that's how we began to move around into um, definitely how we got into Burma, uh, Indonesia. We were networked by individuals who invited us and we didn't we weren't carrying a kit of what they had to do. We weren't there to fix anything. Um, that was we weren't there to help them. So, Rabia, can I actually read another thing from your bearing witness description that I thought was so well articulated? I don't want to throw you off your story. Oh, no, no. Okay. Um, Just you say about bearing witness, this is your introduction to bearing witness. You say, most of us know that the large organizations and governments that are trying to lead the world are on a self-destructive path, and most of us are paying the price for their decisions. Why, despite so very many hardworking and well-intentioned people, have these structures been so difficult to change, especially in the last decades? It seems to me that two of the obstacles that keep us from moving forward to a more life-giving and sustainable future are, one, all sides of most disagreements, whether it's climate control, uh, trade agreements, or getting your child to clean his or her room, (laughs) tend to use the same tactics for change. We are part of a game of constant opposition. And two, people at work and play spend most of their time talking and planning and making decisions with people who hold the same opinions as they do. Um, They may be biological hangover from our tribal days, but it is a habit we need to overcome in today's crowded diverse and interconnected world. A comment that was just made, I just interviewed Sandra Janoff, who created the future search process, and she makes a very similar comment. But uh, I wanted to just read that because it seems core to what you mean by bearing witness, and you're starting to talk about it. And I wondered if you could fill out a bit more about what it is, and then how and then and then where you've used it and stories about how you've used it. Does that work? Or? That works for me just fine. And that was written over a decade ago before we were in the situation we're in now, Um, almost two decades ago. Wow. Seems like it it should have been written. I mean, right today is so relevant. Right. So totally relevant. It's the the art of bearing witness is showing up to where the suffering is. It's not standing on the outside. So if you want to follow a path of bearing witness as a way of doing your activism or engaging peace or environmental issues, the first thing you do is show up with no judgment, with what Buddhists call unknowing. It's the exact opposite of a detailed plan uh, (laughs) or a top-down plan. Uh You, You don't know what success is going to be like when you're finished or if you're going to finish. Um... You have more of an intention than a series of goals, actually. You know, it's what's my intention? My intention is to be of service to, um, in this case, it was to the tribal people in Burma and uh, and Thailand. So, you know, the plunge, <laughs> the plunge into it was we knew nothing about the tribal people. I'd never stayed in huts up on stilts. Um, I hadn't been in jungles and I was afraid of them. So, nor you know, I didn't know what we had anything to offer. And I didn't worry about that. I simply um, led a group into the, um, because I know about Vision Quest, I, I led them into the forest. Um, our food catch didn't show up. 
And we had to walk about five hours to the first village. And that's where it started. And and what, how did they perceive you? Like, I mean, and how were you thinking of yourself as a neutral or were you thinking of yourself as a third side, like that kind of idea? No, um, though we are friends with Bill Urey, we, we weren't using that concept. He's a neighbor and we worked with him quite a bit in the Middle East um, not so long ago. Um, helped him start, well, worked with him starting the... Um, uh, the pilgrimage from Turkey through to Palestine was based on his hearing a story from Elias and I of being pilgrims. Wow. And mm -hmm. it was part of his inspiration. So I said, we're good friends. But no, I wasn't thinking of third side at all. I was actually, over time, began to think of myself as part of the tribe. Um, but if it kind of go back to this notion of a pilgrim. It's different than a third side. Um, a pilgrim is there in some spiritual context. Uh, the journey itself is a is a building of a spiritual friendship, and uh, it was more. I don't know if you if you know the story from uh, King Arthur of Parsifal. Uh, it, it was more like that. It was more like going into the Grail Kingdom, and uh, not knowing what to do about what was happening, going away without seeing the grail, coming back 20 years later, going back into the grail castle and understanding that the thing to do is to help the king by asking a question, hmm. what ails thee? Hmm. So it, it built a lot from, um, we asked this tribe we had spent five days with, you know, as you would quite, you were taught to do, um, what can, what can we do for you? What can, you know, what can we give you for your kindness these mm -hmm. five days? And the, uh, uh, the person who stood up, we thought they were going to ask for a health money. They were trying to get a clinic, but what they said is we want our story heard. Mm. Wow. That was their response mm -hmm. to what can we do for you? Mm -hmm. And that kind of unpacked everything. Um, I looked at Elias. He looked at me. We were we were part of a crowd at that point of several hundred tribal people and about five of us, Ty and Elias and I. And Elias said, all right, we'll bring people back here to hear your story. And their story, the tribal people's story, wasn't being heard, which is they're the ones protecting the forest. If you turn it into a national park, said you know, through the translator, said the uh, the head of the tribe, the police who are cooperating with the loggers will continue to decimate this forest. Mm -hmm. The only thing that's keeping it alive, and he meant all of northern Thailand and part of northern Burma, mm -hmm. is us. This was the Pagaya tribe we know as, as the Karin peoples. Um, and there were over a half a million of them between the two the two countries. The only thing keeping it alive and keeping it uh, nourished is us and the way we farm it and the way we protect it. And they're telling us we have to leave because we have no written evidence of ownership. Pretty classic. Right, uh, right. Yeah, and uh, over the next year, one of the things that happened, one of about a, almost a dozen of things that happened over the next seven years, but as my husband 
came back the following year with some students from the university we were teaching and some other friends of ours from India to uh, to begin what we called solidarity walks. We did three or four of these every year for seven years. It was a thousand or more people were brought to listen to the uh, the Pagaya people. And but one of the few things we brought to them is my husband knew how to make um, ecological mapping, you know, how to name the streams, what to what to do to create a bioregional map of a place, because we taught students. And they spent a whole winter in Burma and in Thailand mapping the place in a way that no one except one people who'd been there for hundreds of years could possibly know. Every stream had a name, where to plant, where to bury the placentas had a name, <laughs> where not to go because it was dangerous had a name. And they made a series of 20 maps and um, then held the next year what they called a forest festival. People walked for days, uh, tribal people walked for days. They invited, we didn't do anything, we were just sort of part of it now. They in, they invited the um, military to come. They invited people from the king's office, um, journalists, and Buddhist monks, which helped a lot. Um, Buddhist monks who had been thinking of them as kind of primitive animists came with us and uh, got to know them. It's a, it's a, uh, we built a huge. We didn't. We were the occasion for which they built a huge constituency. So let me summarize uh, these, uh, because you say in your bearing witness you, that, that it requires these kinds of practices. Can I read them? Please. Okay. That, that the first is you encounter the other, you, you show up, you take the plunge. Um, you ask caring questions that open the heart of the other. You practice the art of deep listening without judgment. You understand techniques for setting aside one's own beliefs and attitudes. You learn to guide meetings without driving one's own agenda. You learn the difference between fixing, helping, and serving. You see ways to bring forth the greater whole that is emerging. And you perceive, I love that idea of paying attention to the greater whole that is emerging and you perceive what is yours to do and when action is ready to emerge. Um, so was this happening there? Was it all those? That's where we learned the steps. Um, you know, we went back every year for seven years and would stay for months at a time working both with the um, environmental activists from Bangkok or the cities and with the tribal people. Um, I think you said, what did they make of us? I don't think in the beginning they quite knew <laughs> because we, we weren't tourists. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, we didn't want anything. We didn't want photographs. Um, and we you know, were. What did they think you were doing there? Maybe for the first first winter, they thought we were journalists. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. But they also knew um, a lot of the other um, Thai and Burmese people we had with us. I mean, over time, taking other activists into their area, 
they knew them and trusted them. Mm -hmm. So it was, here's my friend, know my friend. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not as hard as maybe it's sounding. (laughs) It wasn't hard. Mm -hmm. And we did this in, um, God, like I said, we did this in over 10 countries. Uh, In Syria, we we went ourselves and then took um, groups from other parts of Asia and the Middle East back there for interfaith dialogues. I think when you ask people what they want, what they think is right, where their pain is, tell us about your sorrow, uh, people open up. And they open up even if you've got a different color skin. So what was Um, the impact of the, so the impact of the Burma, Thailand work was that people their story did get out there and and what happened as a result that's one of a lot their um their older teenagers began coming back regularly um this the monks buddhist monks and the animist shamans made peace over several fights they'd been having about the uh the forest area and how to use it um the, the second year we came back, there were big wooden signs on trees as we drove into the area telling you how to behave. <laughs> never been there before. Mm-hmm. You know, don't walk here, don't kill that, don't take pictures. And our hearts just <laughs> listed. The Forest Festival was a big, um, big success. Mm-hmm. And they made a, uh, this was brilliant, they thought of it, made a document they wanted to give to the king. Um, by this time, we were also getting known. You know, we brought them attention. That's what the caring outsider does. We brought them attention. Mm-hmm. They gave their 4,000 acres to the king. They gave it away with the understanding they would stay on the land and protect it. So basically, basically, you saw that there was a situation where they were going to make uh, all of this land. They were going to put it into public parks. You uh, people, uh, people, you knew people in the city that were activists, but you, but no one really knew how this was impacting the forest people. You actually, you and your husband and some others decided to go into the forest and take the plunge and ask those caring questions that open up the heart of the other. In other words, how is this impacting you? And you did this over the course of a number of years, it sounds like. And what they wanted from you is to bring, put some sunlight on how this was impacting them and to tell their story. And in the course of your work, that's basically what happened is you brought a lot of attention to what was going on and what their story was. And as a result, it sounds like many of much of the conflict uh, worked itself out as a result of the attention. Is that is that sounding like an act? Well, the attention has so far kept the, um, the, really the police were a big part of the problem there. The police were helping the loggers illegally take out the logs. Uh-huh. So drawing attention to that, um, put that down, we started these solidarity walks, these vision quests into the forests of Thailand. It was fairly dramatic. People wanted to come from other places. 
Um, could you just we knew... could you describe it a little bit? Like like was this a protest or was this a? No 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 the <laughs> no um, a vision quest is a done here in the United States based on Native American teachings. Also, we we raise money and brought Native Americans over wow. every year to wow. meet with these tribal people. It was wow. tearing because the Native Americans said to the tribal people, we have a video of this, don't lose this land, don't lose this battle. This is what our parents told us it was once like. And everybody's in tears. Yeah. You know, it's really an empowering time. But so we, you're right, we shined sunlight on it, but they stepped up. Um, that doesn't always happen. They weren't, um, there was no Taliban threatening them. Mm -hmm. They, you know, that it would, it was different when we worked in Syria and Iran. It was a, but still the role of the caring outsider, that's all I know what to say, is much more powerful than, than we know. And the key is, is to, you know, be mature enough to not go there with an opinion. We didn't plan to start with the village people. We were taking the urban environments out to meet their, out to meet their, um, their forests. In in Thailand, there in Burma, there is something called forest monks, and these are the ones who don't live in the city, but who walk through the, through the villages, teaching the people Buddhist lessons. So our walk was called by them a tudong, a forest was, walk, mm -hmm. a tudong. Mm -hmm. And we called it a vision quest because that's what Westerners could I identify with. You go to listen to what the forest has to say to you mm. about what's going on for you in your life mm. and what comes next. So we've done them for 25 years here in the United States now. They're not protests at all. People went on the vision quest to do a solo and to ask for their own learning from the forest. And then we would go to the villages for them to sit and to listen um, and, to, and to make contacts with the villagers. Um, Rabia, so could you... Uh, could, uh, could you say something, I, I don't want to cut you off, but could you say something about, you said uh, you've done this in, in different parts of the Middle East or where there was something like the Taliban, like mm -hmm. was that in Afghanistan, I don't know, is that Afghanistan, where, where, I'm not sure where you were referring to, Afghanistan perhaps. Um, uh, would you describe well, its application in one of those contexts? Um, not as easy, but same process, absolutely the same process. We ended up in Syria, um, actually before 9-11, uh, my husband had a, um, a contact there with some other Sufis. So they invited us to Syria. It was, oh, how long ago? Before 9-11. And we began bringing other groups to talk to both the, uh, uh, the Shia and the Sunni because they were telling us 15 years ago, this is the problem not your country and Afghanistan or Iraq. They were telling us, citizens, and I kept thinking, what is, what is my country's leadership? Who are they listening to? I felt that a number of times. I've written papers about uh, what we were hearing from people on the road in the Middle East about what was likely to happen. 
and um, that it things, was a, were, things were going to erupt between Sunni and Shia? Was that, yes. is that what you're saying? Yeah. That's where the eruption was mm-hmm. going to be. Mm-hmm. And that going into Iraq was like throwing a match. Mm-hmm. And um, we weren't, the ISIS wasn't there yet. Yeah. I tried right. talking to former ISIS people in Afghanistan, and I found it a real loser. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I couldn't get any, any uh, honest comments from them, though I did manage to make some relationships with Afghan men. I did most of my work with Afghan, Pakistan, and eventually Indian women um, to try to give them a voice in the peacemaking. Uh, Can you slow, could you slow that down a little bit? When you say you did that, what actually happened? How did you bring them together? If you, if you pull together a group of women to give them a voice in the peacemaking, what, what actually happened? I went to... over with, I went over the first time. I've yeah. been there three times. Mm-hmm. Went over the first time with a group from uh, Code Pink. Maybe okay. you've heard of them. Yeah. And uh, they were going over before Obama's talk about, withdrawing troops to have the women say we want the troops out and my experience with them one of seven women was that's not what they were saying the women over there were saying at least the women in the cities were saying don't leave us don't leave us now Mm -hmm. Uh, we'll be killed and I felt code pink kept turning that around. They would say, well, you if you had to choose between troops and development money, you'd want them to get out of here. Or if you, you know, and I've really, uh, I've been a, I've worked for the peace movement all my life, and I felt there was a kind of peace fundamentalism going on um, that at least they weren't telling the truth about what the Afghan women were saying. So Code, code Pink, I, sorry, Code Pink wasn't code pink was, was not saying what they were saying. You no. were hearing something different and Code was, Pink that's, was... That's been yeah. more accurate. Mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. hearing something, I was hearing something very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I went back then a second time taking my, my own group of people. It was later in the conflict. Um, I went outside of uh, Kabul, and the message was more mixed. The women in the villages, um, they were just at risk no matter what was happening. They didn't care if there was soldiers there or not, to tell the truth, Um, as long as they weren't in the middle of an armed fire. So it, it, it became, but what I did eventually enable to happen is come back to the United States um, talk with women who were much higher than I am in the political realm and were funders to uh, over to send someone else in and build a uh, an organization between Afghan and Pakistan and women from India, hmm. um, a regional organization. It was so clear, to, again, this was from what we were hap- hearing from the beginning that what was happening in Afghanistan was become of Pakistan. Right. I mean, that, that triangle of the, you know, Pakistan and right. India and Afghanistan's right in between. And sometimes you think, oh, my gosh, it's just this. It seemed to me almost like a political football, you know, it's like it. But it's really about India and Pakistan. And it, and, it was. Yeah. It certainly was in the beginning. And that they would be telling civilians this. You know, I tried to orchestrate a meeting between the army in um, 
colonel in and his some of his people who was in charge of the development of Kabul and the women I group I was meeting with and it couldn't happen. The women wouldn't go into where the military was. And I said, okay, to the military guy. They were great guys. Um, you come and meet with these women leaders from women's group. And they said, okay. I said, but you have to take off your uniform or these women will be killed. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, we can't do that. So right there was was a roadblock to the possibility of the military listening seriously to a large group of about 15 women leaders in Kabul mm -hmm. because they couldn't take off their uniform and the women, of course, couldn't go onto the base. Mm -hmm. So it's sad. I mean, it's, it's sad. Um, when you, that gets back to my belief that making peace is an intimate project, and once it gets at the policy or governmental level, um, you can make laws, but you can't guarantee peace. Rabia, I mean, could that, you could yes. you summarize? You know, when you talk when you talk bearing witness, could you summarize again what what you mean by that exactly? Just um, yeah, I think it'd be helpful to just bearing, hear it summarize. Bearing witness is a willingness to. Go to where the suffering, it can be a war or it can be a family in trouble or it can be a corporation, to go to where it is with no judgment and open to um, asking questions. It's so simple. Mm -hmm. It's so simple. You mm -hmm. just mix it. Mm -hmm. But the key is to recognize, as you do, Susan, that the intelligence of the situation um, will reveal to you what it needs to heal those relationships mm. if you go in and trust the situation uh, and be sensitive to this requires a slowing down and a lot more time than we give it and, and, it's, and a willingness to endure a process that can seem inefficient. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A bearing witness can even look messy uh, as different points of view are aired and different projects are started. Um, but it, it's the only way to allow people to explore their diverse ways of understanding what is happening. And that's what's key. You've and you are to, with yourself. What you're doing is you're simply being a receiver of it and reflecting back what you're hearing. Yes. It's, it's, so that's hearing. you're not you're right. not giving advice. You're not. Um... That's important mm -hmm. because if you're trying to fix them, it implies they're broken. Right. Right. Even if you're trying to help. That's somehow uh, an attitude of superiority. And it's important that people in conflict understand that they've got the answers mm -hmm. and only they have the answers to what's trying to happen here. Um, so I think that's an important part of, of bearing witness. Um, like I said, we were in um, Standing Rock earlier this year. And we only played two roles. We weren't trying to fix anything at all. But we went in to um, create opportunities just to listen both to the Native people and also to the, um, the white and people of color who were there. Um, we didn't wait, the, wait, did you say the white and the people? Wait, and who the did people you, of color. Okay, so the white. But what about, what about the, uh, 
the um, oh, the pipeline. The, no, what about the pipeline people? Were you talking? You... Didn't do it. That's mm -hmm. why we didn't um, couldn't make any resolution. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't let us near them. Hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, they wouldn't let us physically near them without being terribly armed and scaring the heck out of <laughs> mm -hmm. out of all of us. Mm -hmm. um, if yeah, so if you can't if you can't uh, if you can't engage the parties and they can't engage each other, nothing can happen. Right. Um, I remember this was like I said when I was in '64 '65 in Selma. Everything was coming to a head for the Voting Rights Act. Everybody wanted the law passed. And it became clear to me years later that no one was trying to reconcile the white Southerners and the, and the Negroes, the blacks. There was no attempt. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it wasn't possible. I mm -hmm. certainly wasn't a leader at that time. And so what's happened and re-arisen with Black Lives Matter is because it, there wasn't peace wrought at the intimate local level um, 50 years ago. And, we, and maybe it had to happen the way it did. You know, we needed laws to even get blacks and whites together at all or to keep them from being uh, burned. Well, this is this fundamental idea that, you know, people, what you're saying, people... People at work and play spend most of their time talking and planning and making decisions with people who hold the same opinions as they do. That whole idea that there isn't yeah. a, a, there isn't a structure, there isn't a container for allowing people who are experiencing difference to actually come together and have a conversation about it. There isn't um, one we could find. Um, and, and that's surprising because it's not true in the environmental movement very easily or in the social justice movement. You're saying it's not um, true that people can come together. No. Yeah. And, and the environmental movement, of which I am a part and I dearly love them, they come in with plans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, they always know what's best for the environment. Well, what if that's not true? Yeah, I really I mean, love I don't yeah. know. Mm -hmm. What if it's not true? Who among us, Susan, you and I right now, really know what a good world is going to look like in a hundred years, <laughs> despite what I write or think or whatever. Mm -hmm. The fact is we don't. And we, I know I sound naive. All I can tell you is that for decades I lived my life this way. I raised money to do it. Um, I'm running a school to teach people to do it. What it, about this idea, Rabia? Th this idea of, this idea that you say our challenge is to loosen our attachment to our personal or group agendas so that we can begin to sense what is trying to emerge from the larger whole, which is made up of many agendas. Well, I love that idea. Can you say anything more about like how you sense? I can what say is a lot. I, yeah. I taught for two semesters. I, I teach a course called Applied Systems Thinking, mm -hmm. and it is about how to help train people to um, be sensitive to what's trying to emerge in a conversation, how to believe there's a larger whole of which you're only a part, how to how to learn to see um, how to learn to see relationships. We've been talking about interconnection for what, 35, 40 years. And everybody, a college student will kind of knee jerk say, well, we're all interconnected. So will a minister. 
and they don't they don't see the interconnections. They haven't. No one's taught people how to actually look at something and see the relationships it's made of. So that's <laughs> that's one line from a two semester course. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just, we. Uh, it's the opposite of what we're taught. You know this about systems yeah, thinking. Yeah, well, yeah. And you need we're to understand. Yeah. Well, get your mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Run a meeting to uh, maneuver others to your point of view. Mm-hmm. And it, it never works. I say that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a street activist. I like being on the streets. But that's not how we make change. I mean, we're not going to change Monsanto or the oil companies just by protesting You've got to be inside the relationships. Um, so, um, so in terms of you know, like uh, as these podcasts go, we're kind of like uh, have some time boundaries. Maybe you could, maybe you could begin to speak to some of your conclusions about what you have learned and what your words of wisdom are to people. Does that make sense to do? Yeah, I think um, it certainly makes sense. I think one of them is um, what you and I were just talking about how to learn to serve the wholeness of a situation or to watch the different relationships that are are part of it um, as they they try to to relieve um, the problems. Uh, I said it's a fixer sees others as broken. A, A helper, I mean, it's trying to get out of the hierarchy. People all people who are peacemakers or service workers or environmentalists, they, they're all trained to be part of a hierarchy. Uh, we're certainly learning that in, our, in the United States at this point in history, that unintentionally we seem to have um, humiliated a lot of people, that that was happening in the third world I can testify to 15, 20 years ago, they were telling me they were humiliated by what the United States was doing with globalization. So uh, the information is available to us. I think most of us have a humility problem. (laughs) Um, And I don't know how to heal people of that except through some spiritual practice, training, We've got, to, we've got to understand that we diminish other people's self-esteem. And when we're doing that, there's no resolution. And Rabia, you know, if there is a need for, and I think you and I agree, there's a need to bring people together that don't necessarily see things the same way. And you've been doing that around the world. And, and yet there's always this challenge of how do you, I don't even know how to articulate it, how do you, uh, how are you welcomed in by multiple sides? You know, how, like, um, you know, I, the, yeah. The bigger problem for, um, well, I have to admit, I didn't figure out how to get involved in multiple sides after 9-11. Mm-hmm. Um, but you did into not. Into the figure, Middle East. You could not. And we were still, mm-hmm. like, not to have... Uh, an impact. Mm-hmm. We were still talking to people in Syria, and Jordan, and Palestine, and 
Israel. I mean, there's so many things. For mm -hmm. 25 years, we've mm -hmm. done to have multiple sides together mm -hmm. in Palestine and Israel, and nobody cares. They're not, they're not finished killing each other over there. Mm -hmm. You need some, you need some buy-in. Um, and Bill knows, Bill knows that well. So it's, he and I have talked, and my husband and he have talked, how over time can you build the buy-in? You know, if you if you vision 10, 20 years out, can you build the buy in um, to the kind of work we're we're all talking about? Um, and I think the other is to is to trust systems theory. It's a legitimate part of science. Why do people have so much trouble? Say, say a bit more. It? Yeah, say a bit more about that. I think it's, so the listeners well, understand what you're systems, saying. Systems thinking which is about seeing the nest of relationships that are part of an issue. And, and you can do that, like I said, about trying to work it out with your teenage son or trying to resolve a war or a community problem. How to trust that there are larger relationships than you and a larger whole, and you have to surrender to to how that's happening, um, you have to you have to go into any negotiation accepting that you don't know, and you won't know until you've listened for a long time, mm -hmm. and that's so hard for Americans. Uh, <laughs> well, it's a lot harder for men. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I'm is, working. Why is that? Well, they're not trained to do that. They're mm -hmm. trained to stand up for their values and their country and. Um, women are trained to serve other people, and, and women are uh, women are wired to listen and receive. I mean, we can all be trained out of that, <laughs> but but it's it's true. Neurologically, we are wired um, to enter into relationships different. If you've ever watched a woman and a man listening to a third party. And what the man takes away from that conversation and the depth of, of uh, information the woman takes away, they don't hear the same way. Mm -hmm. um, that became clear to me, especially when my husband and I were working in the Middle East for a decade. He wasn't experiencing the same country I was. Mm -hmm. um, he wasn't hearing the same things that I was hearing as a woman in those situations. So, Ravi, I know you. Face. I know you uh, actually are doing a lot of work with women. Have done, and certainly are doing a lot of work with women now. And and I've heard you say something about how important you see women's role as peace builders. Could you say a little bit about that? Well, um, if women can feel empowered to be feminine, um, or to be women in the roles they play, I think they can. They have a much better chance of being a peace builder or the kind of holistic thinking that you and I are talking about. Uh, when I, as a feminist in the 70s, was working my way up the the nonprofit uh, hierarchy, um, they let me in, actually broke a lot of glass ceilings, but they didn't let the feminine in. I mean, I got in because I was very good at the male game. Mm -hmm. I could do what they did and do it better and with a baby on my hip. And that's how I progressed. But now 
we need women to be able to be women. And that means to use their intuition, to trust it, to, um, to pay attention, to insist on opportunities for relationship to happen. And to understand that every situation you're encountering is nothing but the relationships that make it up. I mean, it's, it's not a wall, it's not a this, it's not a that. It's a, it's a cluster of relationships. And uh, how, how you work with those relationships, how you come to listen to them, ask the right questions, is trainable. Um, but, and at least women are interested in it. That's what I find. That was a beautiful um, thing that you said. Uh, they allowed you in, but they didn't allow the feminine in. That's a beautiful right. way of putting it. And right. uh, and now, yeah, yeah. Now you're now seeing. It's different, I think. I think there's more opportunity. Um, it's not different across the scale, but there are a lot of younger men now. I know this is a truism because by no means are all younger men, but there's a lot of younger men that were raised by feminists mm-hmm. who are. Um, better at being called on what they're not doing. Yeah, well, I can see I can think of my son, my 21 year old son, who's just so adorable and really, you know, I mean, he listened to Brene Brown, her her TED talk on vulnerability. He listened to it about, you know, 25 times, you know, (laughs) just really they want to do right, especially Mm -hmm. when they fall in with a woman, even more when they have a daughter. Mm -hmm. That's that's the point of a change in our system. Fathers of young daughters. Um, so, so because- Rabia, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, yeah, no. So we, we've been, you know, I'm just looking at the time and just, and I don't want to run out of time. So we have talked about a bunch of different things. We've talked about uh, some of your work uh, with um, uh, Bearing Witness and um, now we're talking a bit about women. And I just want to, like, in the, in the time remaining, um, what is it that, are, are there things that you want to say that, I mean, there's so many things that you could say because your experience has been so rich and, and vast. Um, is there something that stands out as being most important to... Uh... I think it's important to understand that what I'm talking about with bearing witness um, gets misunderstood in two ways. One, they think, oh, well, that's okay for enlightened leaders um, or those who are you know, working for social justice only, but it's not, it's, it is for all of us. And the other mistake is thinking that. Sorry, how so? How so is it, is it applicable um, for everybody? It's for all of us. I mean, it's for your son Mm -hmm. teaching, you know, if he's, he's got a problem with a boyfriend, you're going to talk to him about how to ask questions, how Mm -hmm. to listen. I mean, Mm -hmm. it is the most obvious Mm -hmm. of human um, movements here, but we think our expertise is more important than our humanity mm-hmm. in solving problems in the mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, well, like I said, I think we have to teach our children and make it a primary requirement of political leaders and political processes that they understand how to uh, show up to the suffering and listen. Um, and not try to fix or manipulate. I like um, this line also where you say, future leaders will be those who have the collaborative skills and spiritual maturity to bear witness to the totality of what is. I thought that was right. a beautiful line. 
Right. And, okay, here's my spiritual background. Why do you go into service to life? Why does anybody on this call want to help justice or environmental health or communication? It's not because it's all broken. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it's, it, it's because it was holy. Mm-hmm. And we're part of it. Mm-hmm. So if there's a spiritual sense that um, we're involved in a sacred task here, Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean mystical woo-woo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that healing the conflict is an intimate act. We cannot do it from afar. Um, In and other that words, probably it, is, it really yes. takes showing up, being present, and really yeah. being open to what you're hearing without going, going out without going in without prejudgment, going in without strategy, without a plan about about what you think the conclusion is but really being able to hear what you're hearing from all the different sides of what you're hearing it from. I'll add one more thing to that. That's right. That's what I believe. And by the time I went over to do what I described with the tribal people, I had had 20 years of experience from when I was in uh, working with Dr. King. I didn't go over there with no knowledge. I knew how to teach. Um, I learned most of what I needed over there. And I don't, you don't need expertise. You need how to be a grown-up, how to be a, how to be a, a that's, a, that's expertise, Ravia. <laughs> that's a life's well, work and how to be a grown-up. I hate to tell you. But <laughs> well, then, you know, then start early. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of people in the world who want to help us be grown-ups. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, they want help. They're just not going to lead with it and say, boy, how can you help us? Um, just like we want help mm-hmm, right now. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you put yourself, oh, this is so corny. <laughs> if you put yourself in the place of the other, mm-hmm. um, everything I have to say is pretty corny when <laughs> you come down to it. And the only thing to add is it works. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, yeah, I, I don't, I don't like the, I don't think it's corny. I think it's, it's just, it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's deep. It's, I mean, it's, it's deep and it's not easy to do, even though it's so simple. Oh. Um, it's either is a marriage. That's what people, yeah. people yeah. say, wow, this is hard. Everything important is hard. Learning to play the piano, right. getting married. Right. All major life things are hard. Right. And we're being called, I think, as a species to really uh, step up to a different level of consciousness where we really are seeing the interconnectedness of things. We really are having to accept the diversity, the great diversity that we're living with on the planet. I think you've also articulated that so well in some of the things that you've written about um, that, uh, you know, that we can try and pretend that that's not the case. But the reality is we're a pretty crowded planet with a lot of people who really are very different from each other and thinking differently. And um, if we can think of it as a whole and holistically and listen holistically, we're going to have a lot better um, luck in terms of uh, bringing it to a place of harmony. That's the truth. That's simply the truth. And it's not clear we're going to make that. No, I know. Um, It's, I don't know how to learn the listen lessons. All I know is that there are millions of people on the planet who know what you just said mm-hmm. and who are out there to network with us. Um, we're, 
once you get out of the United States, everything gets much easier. <laughs> Why? Um, say say a little bit well, about that, because a lot of the people, listeners are uh, in the United the, States. Yeah. The United States is people are taught to believe we've got the answers. Mm-hmm. People are taught um, to practice all their life knowing how to outline the answers and then evaluate them, where you don't find that in most other countries, Mm -hmm. except religious fundamentalists are hard. Mm -hmm. Um, They're hard to listen to and they're hard to work with. But again, I don't think anything's impossible. Uh, So are you feeling, are you feeling hopeful or, or? (laughs) (laughs) Mostly. Mm-hmm. Right. I have been I've been writing and saying to everyone absolutely hopeful here we mm-hmm. go we got mm-hmm. work to do this mm-hmm. is what we were made for and then about four days ago I hit the skits and I wrote my friends and said okay who can I talk to about mm-hmm. uh, feeling like I can't think of anything except what's wrong mm-hmm. but it's it goes up and down mm-hmm. and what else are you going to be you know d- despair is hard Mm-hmm. Um, hey, Rabia. Is- yeah. So, oh, yeah. Go ahead. Go? Uh, so no. you know, uh, um, there's there's young people I know that are like really interested in doing doing work in peace and conflict, and yet, you know, it's really difficult to figure out a way to support oneself in doing that. And and I wonder. I mean, it, you've already given us some idea about how, how you dealt with it. You sold your house and you just hit the road, <laughs> which right. is. Uh, and- the bad news on that um, was con- contrary to what I thought. We were never able to buy back in. Uh-huh. Boulder's houses just shot up while yeah. we were gone, and yeah. we never could get back in. Um, so it's it's not easy. I am fundraising all the time. I don't get paid for what I do. Mm-hmm. I run this great school, and um, I get I get help from individual funders. And it means every year having to, um, it, and also it's partly because I'm older. Younger people will have a much easier time raising money. We're kind mm-hmm. of an ageist mm-hmm. society as much mm-hmm. as we are sexist. Mm-hmm. And I, I know for a, a fact that younger people can raise money to make a difference if, um, if they're persuasive that they have the heart to show up. Um, I think... Yeah, I think that's right. And you can also get your community, whether it's a church or a sangha or a temple or whatever, you can get them to support you for a year um, out of the country while you learn what to do and how to do it. I think that's key for young people is um, just start, get a loan. (laughs) You've already got one, forget that. get some other people to help you and go start in a country where you have some contact. Um, if you want to reach me, you can find me at wakinguptogether.org. Mm-hmm. Um, hit, you know, hit, go to the contact place and that'll send me an email. Um, and yeah, I wouldn't waste a lot of money on more university at this point in history. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, mm-hmm. I went through it, mm-hmm. um, and I it was you know it was great, but it's not what I would advise my my children or um, grandchildren today. What would you I advise? Mean, what would you advise them? 
doing what I just said, get out mm-hmm. into the world somehow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And out into the world might mean Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking of how to take groups down there. Right now, I don't have that one phone call I feel I need. Mm-hmm. Um, the church is probably a good way. But no, get out to where you'll meet the other mm-hmm. and have some support. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a good summary. And and Rabia, because I think you and I both agree uh, about how and this podcast isn't about the work you're doing with women. But I I think we both agree that women are absolutely critical to building peace on the planet. And I know you've been doing something very specific right now, which you could we just end with you saying a little bit about that work? Well, I've, I started um, a school um, specifically for women. And it came about because I discovered my granddaughter really didn't know much about what we learned in, uh, in the sixties and seventies. She didn't know the, re- anyway, it was amazing to me what he didn't know about what we knew about women. And, uh, so I started the school and mostly I've got 50 and 60 year olds signing up some younger women, mm-hmm. but it's, um, well, it's what do we know? It's called her story instead mm-hmm. of history. Mm-hmm. And it's um, it's the world from a woman's point of view. Mm-hmm. And how can people access this if they're interested in that? Um, well, again, go on my website, wakinguptogether.org. Mm-hmm. Okay. And under um, teachings and videos, there'll be the introduction to her story, okay. H-E-R-S-T-O-R-Y. Uh-huh. And uh, people can learn about it that way. I also do very inexpensive coaching um, for people in nonprofits. If people are earning a lot of money, I do very expensive coaching. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way to go. That's the way to go. Yeah. So listen, Ravia, thank you so much for your time. And I mean, we've talked about so many things. And I just really appreciate all of your wealth of experience and I and hope you can put this together. Susan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've had so much courage. You've been such an adventurer with so much, you know, so much intention, positive intention that you've put out in the world. And um, so. I didn't tell you the bad parts. I got malaria. I got dengue fever. Yeah. I fe- broke my neck. <laughs> that, you broke, um, your, broke your neck? That didn't stop me. Wow. Yeah. That was three years ago back here. But yeah. anyway, another phone conversation for you and I. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I think there are a lot of people right now who are trying to figure out how to take um, progressives into um, other parts of the country mm-hmm. to listen to people from other churches and things like that. I think Van Jones is doing that. Um, anyway, I'm, I want to try to do it for women, kind of mm-hmm. a women to women. Mm-hmm. I'll mm-hmm. call you when I'm ready to do that. And I, maybe we could do a podcast on that. I would, I would love, love to do that. So that'd be great. Okay. Okay. All so right. See if you need a fill in or something. I will. So thank you so much. And, uh, you know, look forward to just a continued connection. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Peacebuilding Podcast. Check out thepeacebuildingpodcast.com for show notes and for more great information and resources. Please email your comments, suggestions, and ideas to susan at thepeacebuildingpodcast.com. And join me next time for more great thinking, innovations, and ideas to take our planet to the next level.